Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, this right here is Ublek. Ublek. Any of you heard of Ublek before? Okay, this is what is known as a non-Newtonian fluid, which is just science geek way of saying it doesn't follow the rules. It's very cool. Um, I'm going to actually demonstrate this for you. I'm going to bring a friend out because it's a little bit messy. And so uh, I'm going to, I got to preach a whole sermon after this. So we're going to have someone else. Come on, let's welcome Nathaniel out to the stage. He's going to demonstrate for us. Ublek is basically a mixture of cornstarch and water. You can actually make your own at home if you want to play around with this. And the strange thing about it is sometimes it behaves like a liquid. So you can kind of tilt it there and see it flow around. Hopefully you can see that moving like that. But if you put enough pressure on it, it behaves like a solid. So let's demonstrate that. See that there? Okay, so it's a liquid, but when you put force on it, it acts like a solid. In fact, if you had an entire swimming pool full of this stuff, uh, if you stood there, you would sink into it, but if you run across it, it holds you up. It's pretty amazing. You can go online and find videos of people doing this all the time. Uh, Very cool. Nathaniel, thank you so much for demonstrating for us. Can we thank him? Today, we are going to be talking about the kingdom of God. And we're going to be talking about how the kingdom responds when it faces resistance. In a lot of ways, it's like that oobleck. It is stronger the more it's opposed. This week is the last week in our road trip series in the book of Acts. Hopefully you have been reading along with us in the Bible Savvy Reading Plan as we've gone through the book of Acts this summer. Hopefully that's helped you get into a a daily rhythm of reading God's word. It's one of the best ways to grow in following him. And hopefully that will continue even after this series is done. But it's really been amazing to walk through the story of the early church like this. And we're actually gonna be looking at the very last story in the book of Acts. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 28 very last page of the book. And we're gonna be looking at the last scene here. And Paul has finally arrived in Rome. Rome, the eternal city, this symbol of glory and power and wealth around the world. It is the center around which the entire Gentile world revolves, the capital of the empire. And in the book of Acts, it symbolizes the, the destination of this journey that began in the first chapter, going from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria, all the way to the ends of the earth, which is symbolized here by the, the capital of the empire. So we're going to read what happens, because even though Paul has arrived where he wanted to go, it's not exactly the circumstances he would have wanted. Let's read in verse 17. Three days later, Paul called together the local Jewish leaders. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers... Although I have done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I wasn't guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly didn't intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I've asked to see you and talk with you, because it is of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. They replied, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there have reported anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. They arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning until evening, 
explaining about the kingdom of God from the law of Moses and from the prophets. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others wouldn't believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their ears, hear, see with their eyes, hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Well, around here, we've discovered that these human words are also the words of God. And so we love to thank God for speaking to us. Let's do that now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Really good storytellers are very deliberate about how they begin and end their stories. It's very common for the final scene or the final line in a, a book or a movie to echo the opening of the movie. A very famous, obvious example of this is The Lion King. The Lion King opens with the famous scene, the circle of life, the, all of the animals gathering around Pride Rock and Mufasa presenting baby Simba before the entire animal kingdom. Well, the movie ends in the same way. Simba is now a grown lion and he is presenting his cub before the entire animal kingdom. It begins and ends like bookends. Most of the time, it's subtler than that. But if you pay attention, you'll realize that they do this in movies and books all the time. You'll see it everywhere. Why do authors do this? They do it as a way to emphasize, to drive home the main themes of their work. Luke, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is a, a great craftsman of his story. And so he has done this here, where he is reinforcing one theme, the theme of the kingdom of God at the beginning and the ending of his book. We pointed this out in the first week of our series. The kingdom is mentioned twice in the opening scene of the book. And here it's mentioned twice again in verse 23 and verse 31. And as we've read through the book, we've seen this theme come up again and again. Jesus is the king. He's seated on a throne. He's ruling. He, he judges the world, and he will come again to, to, to claim the world as his own. The, the word kingdom, it comes up at several key turning points in the book as well. And so Luke wants us to see this, to see that the spread of the Christian movement is actually about more and more people bowing their knee to King Jesus and experiencing a preview of the coming kingdom within the Christian community. And as we close the book, Luke has one final big idea he wants to share with us about the kingdom, and it's this. Even when we are hindered, the kingdom is not. Even when we are hindered, the kingdom is not. We're going to see three ways the kingdom seems to be hindered in this passage, but it turns out they're not actually obstacles. Here, here's the first one. The kingdom is not hindered by reputation. It's not hindered by reputation. When Paul arrives in Rome, he does what he does in every city he goes to. He first meets with the Jewish leaders, the Jewish community of that city. The reason he does this, for one reason, is very practical. Uh, he's sharing the message of the Jewish Messiah. So he goes to the community that already has the scriptures. They already know the terminology. They've got the background. And so it's easy to explain to them first the message that he's bringing. He also thinks that, uh, in theory, this should be the easiest group of people to sort of sell his message to. It's easier to convince someone who's already using an iPhone to upgrade to the new iPhone than to convince someone who's using Samsung to trade brands. 
So he goes to the Jews first saying, you're waiting for the Messiah and I wanna tell you about him. The other reason he does this is theological. God chose Israel, God chose the Jews to be his people. He said, you're gonna be the pilot project for the kingdom of God. You're gonna show the world what it means to be in relationship with me. And so as God is moving to fulfill his kingdom, he begins with the Jews. It's sort of like if you're opening a new division of your company, you're gonna talk with your business partner about what you're doing. That these are people who've had a covenant relationship with God. He is their father, they are his people. And so as God makes a new covenant, they, they should be the first to hear about it. If you're gonna adopt a child, you're gonna talk to your other kids before you bring in a new sibling. And so the Jews are the first people to have been in a relationship with God. And so they're first to hear kind of the new movement of what God is doing when he comes to a city. So Paul's mission is mostly with Gentiles, but he always starts with the Jews. In this case, though, there's another reason he goes to the Jewish community first. It's because of the reason he is in Rome. He was, he's under arrest. He went to the city of Jerusalem at the end of one of his journeys, and he was arrested there. We're gonna start reading about this on Monday. And he was arrested because they accused him of defiling the temple, of preaching against his own people. And the high priest actually accused him before the Roman governor and said, he's causing riots, he's disturbing the peace. And they wanted him to be executed. The Roman governor looked at him and said, well, he hasn't done anything that deserves death. I wanna release him. But they insisted, they insisted. Now that story probably should sound familiar because it's the exact same thing that happened to Jesus just 30 years earlier. Only in this case, instead of Paul going to his death, he kind of pulls out a, a little trick here. He's a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, he has the right when standing before a Roman judge to say, I actually want my trial to be heard by Caesar himself. Now, this is a right that citizens didn't pull out very often for obvious reasons, but Paul's thinking, okay, I, I can delay execution, I'm gonna do that, and also, if I can have an excuse to go to Rome, I'm gonna use it. Even if it's not under the circumstances I would want, that's gonna get me to where I want to go. That's not the way I'd recommend trying to get a European vacation, but it worked for Paul. So he ends up in Rome and he's talking to the Jews there because he's thinking, by now, they probably have gotten a letter or some messenger from Jerusalem. They've heard all about the hubbub that went on there and they've, they've heard the bad side of the story. So I'm gonna tell them my side of the story. So he goes through this long explanation of what's gone on and this is how they respond in verse 21. They reply, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. Basically, Paul's like, yeah, I'm kind of a big deal. Like, you probably heard all about what I was doing and all that, you know. And they're like, no, sorry, buddy. Never heard of you. But then they go on to say this. And this is the part I really want you to see. We want to hear what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect. The, the Christian movement, as it's spread across the Roman Empire, has picked up a reputation, and it isn't a good one. One of my least favorite things, moments when I meet a new person is when they say, so what do you do for a living? And then I gotta tell them. It used to be that being a pastor, even if someone wasn't religious, accorded you a little bit of respect. There was some credibility gained by being someone who worked in a church. But in this day and age, that's not necessarily the case. It mostly just makes things awkward. How many of you have had that experience where you suddenly become embarrassed when someone finds out that you're a follower of Jesus? Not, not that you were trying to share the gospel or something like that, but simply that you were a Christian. There are still parts of the country, mostly in the South, where being a follower of Jesus, going to church, is part of being culturally respectable. But in most places, including around here, that day is mostly past. I mean, think about how a lot of people think about Christ followers. 
We're hypocrites. We're judgmental. We're closed-minded. We're sexually restrictive. We hate gay people and poor people and women and science and the environment. We think we're better than others. We're pushy, always trying to force our views on people. We talk more about what we're against than what we're for. We're too political. We're behind the times. We're on the wrong side of history. We don't have a good reputation. And the bad reputation comes from a few different sources. Sometimes it is simply misunderstanding. There are a lot of people who think they know what followers of Jesus believe and how we live, but they don't actually. They've picked it up in bits and pieces, and maybe they don't have a close Christian friend who's explained it to them. So they've filled it in with stereotypes and assumptions. So it's a misunderstanding. Other times, though, it's our own fault. We've done something to earn it. We are hypocrites. We don't live up to our own standards, and we're the first to admit that. And there are scandals within churches. They trouble us, and it makes sense that they trouble other people. And there are many people who follow Jesus who do not communicate with tact or with love when they talk about their beliefs. And so sometimes our reputation is something we've earned. Other times, though, our bad reputation doesn't come from misunderstanding or our own bad behavior. It comes simply because our beliefs and our lifestyle are so strange to a lot of people. I mean, we believe that this ancient book is actually communication from God. We, we insist that every person is a helpless sinner and that there is only one way to be saved, Jesus. When we talk about life, we say, you should give freely your money away as, you, as often as you can, but you should put boundaries around your sex life. We say that the only way to live is to die to yourself. That the way to find true fulfillment is actually to deny yourself. And that sounds so strange to so many people, even offensive to a lot of people. This bad reputation makes a, a lot of people nervous about the future of the Christian movement. A lot, a lot of people within churches get uh, very concerned. This isn't true in our area yet, but I've just had some friends come back from a vacation and they were talking about where they were, all these old churches that have been turned into restaurants and apartment buildings and offices rather than being places of worship. People look at the statistics and they see a decline in church attendance or people who identify with Jesus. They see an increase in people who don't identify with any religion at all. It's gone from one in 10 in the 1970s to one in four people today. One in three people if you're under 30. And so people see this and they get afraid and they start to panic. What, what happens when we go from a culture that most people were familiar with Christian teaching and at least respected Christian morality to a society where people are ignorant of Christian teaching and they're disgusted by Christian morality? What happens? What happens in a world where Christianity has a bad reputation? I find it really helpful to remember that there has never been a time when Christianity had a worse reputation than when the Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel. Everywhere he went, people objected. There were mobs and riots. They were despised. They were looked down upon. They were misunderstood. But that didn't stop the gospels from spreading then. In fact, there were times when the bad reputation of Christians actually led to opportunities to explain the gospel to people. Look at verse 22 again. The people are bad-mouthing this movement, but this is what the, the leaders say. Because of that, we want to hear what your views are. They're curious. Sort of in the way non-runners are curious about marathoners. It's like, why in the world would you do that to yourself? But they're curious. Paul takes the opportunity. Verse 23, they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day. And they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. And he witnessed to them all day long, morning till evening, explaining the kingdom of God. From the law of Moses and the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. 
I had a friend growing up who ended up going to college out of state, and he ended up staying in that state when he graduated, and he got involved in some local and state government jobs. And while he was serving in those jobs, he, he started to interact with Christians. And uh, he was not a follower of Jesus, and he had no church background at all, and so most of what he knew uh, about Christ followers was picked up from bits and pieces here and there. And what he was hearing from these Christians was very disturbing to him. He, he was having a hard time getting his head around where they were coming from. And so one time when he was back visiting, he got breakfast with me and he said, Clayton, I gotta be honest. I really don't get these people. They're, they're in my area. I'm, I'm supposed to serve them, but I don't understand them. And, and, and really, some of the things they say, I really disagree with. And I, I can't see why anyone would think what they think. So could I, like, you, you're a follower of Jesus, and you don't seem crazy, so could I actually kind of send you some of the things I'm getting, and you can kind of translate for me? And I sort of became the cultural interpreter for Christ followers for this guy. He started sending me emails saying, hey, I got this, or someone said that. What do they mean by that? And there were a lot of times where, honestly, these people were crazy. Like, it was just nuts stuff. They were not making us look good. But it was great, because I had the chance to say, let me tell you what we actually think. Let me present to you our way of life, our beliefs in a way that is reasonable and respectful that you can process and understand. Before long, he actually said, you know, this is great. I'm actually gonna include my mom on some of these emails because she's got questions about this because she's encountering crazy Christians. So can she ask questions? And I started emailing back and forth with the two of them. Now, I wish I could tell you that the two of them have surrendered their lives to Jesus. That hasn't happened yet. But even so, the point is this, the bad reputation of Christians actually led to an opportunity to explain the genuine, compelling, true gospel. The kingdom of God is not hindered by reputation. The kingdom is also not hindered by rejection. It's not hindered by rejection. Uh, Paul spends the entire day explaining to the Jewish community in Rome about the kingdom of God. He goes to scripture to show them that Jesus is the Messiah. And here's how they react. Verse 24. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and they began to leave after Paul made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to our, your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing but never understanding, ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Paul explains, therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. Here's the sad reality. We should never be surprised when someone rejects the gospel. Paul quotes Isaiah 6 here. It's a story of Isaiah being called to be a prophet. He's standing before God and God is giving him his assignment. He's saying, you are going to declare my message to the people, but here's how they're gonna respond. They're gonna hear you, they're gonna see you, but they're not gonna get it. And so Paul explains to this community, he says, this is what it's felt like the past 20 years. As I've gone from town to town, every synagogue I go in, I, I explain the message and it's like they, they, they hear what I'm saying, but they just don't get it. And I want them to get it because if they would turn, God would heal them. So he's explaining, this is why most of the time I spend time preaching to the Gentiles. Now, there are a lot of questions here. One question is this, why is it that two people can hear the exact same thing and respond in completely different ways. Some were convinced by what he said, but others wouldn't believe. It's like they could hear, but internally they processed the message in, in completely different ways. It's sort of like that picture that went around the internet several years ago, picture of the dress, you remember this one? 
Okay, some people look at this and they think that it is blue and black and other people think it is gold and white. Let's do a little survey here. How many of you are blue and black? How many of you are gold and white? We're in the minority, us gold and white people, and we're also wrong, apparently. In real life, I think it's in blue and black. But the idea here is this. This is not an issue of colorblindness. It's not an issue of what comes into your eye. It is an issue of how your brain processes the message that's coming in. And different people see it in completely different ways, and they don't understand the other perspective. In one of his other letters, Paul says that the message of Jesus to some people is like the aroma of life. And to other people, it's like the stench of death. Why do some people believe and others don't? Now, there's a lot of mystery, a lot of debate about how to answer that question. Some people say, well, maybe it's because people just haven't chosen to believe yet. Or maybe it's because God hasn't opened their heart yet. It's a hard question to answer in a really satisfying way. If you say the answer is, God just hasn't opened up their heart yet, you're telling the truth, but it sometimes makes seem God unfair, not good. Like, why wouldn't he open their heart? And and scripture tells us he desires all to be saved. On the other hand, if you say, well, it's just because they haven't chosen to believe yet, that's the truth, but it opens up its own set of questions. The the question that's biggest is, well, why did I choose then if they didn't choose? Because I certainly can't say it's because I'm a little bit smarter, I'm a little bit better, I'm a little bit more spiritually open than them. So I, I didn't earn this. So it almost makes God look less gracious. So people have debated this question again and again for ages, and we haven't really settled on a definitive answer. How do you relate God's sovereignty, God's inhuman freedom and responsibility when someone comes to faith? And not every follower of Christ who looks at the Bible uh, sees this the exact same way. Even on our pastoral staff, if you ask different pastors, they would explain this in different ways. But wherever you land in the question, two things are true, clear from scripture. First is this, humans are responsible when they reject Jesus. We're responsible if we reject Jesus. But the Bible is also clear that saving faith is a gift of God. It's not a human accomplishment. And so what that does is this. It gives us an urgency to say, we've got to tell people, give them a chance to respond. And it gives us a confidence, a boldness to say, we know that God can open any heart. Here's another question this passage raises. Why is it that Paul seems to say, I'm going to give up talking to these people now and go on to talk to these people? Is he just saying, you know what, I'm done with them and washing their hands, washing his hands of them? There are other places in the Bible where this sort of thing comes up. Jesus sends his disciples out city to city and he says, hey, if that city doesn't listen to you, just wipe the dust off your feet and go to the next city. Can you just you know, give up and sharing the gospel with someone once they've rejected the gospel? But let me answer this very carefully. There are some situations where someone has heard the gospel so clearly and so definitively rejected it that you can say, I have done all I can. It is between that person and God now. But here's the problem with that. Most of us are not like Paul. Paul is a passionate, dedicated evangelist, and most of us are very timid, apathetic evangelists. Paul is looking for ways to talk to anybody about Jesus, and most of us are looking for ways to avoid talking about Jesus. So if we were to say something like this, we were most likely use it as an excuse not to share the gospel when we should. In fact, we'd probably use it as an excuse to to write people off even before we've tried to talk to them. They're not interested, so I'm just not gonna bother. But you cannot do that. You cannot do that. You cannot decide for someone else how they're gonna respond. The only way you know what's going on in someone's heart is by sharing the message and seeing how they respond. And even then, it usually takes time. Have you noticed as we've read through the book of Acts how often the word persuade comes up? 
Paul, Paul spends time persuading people about Jesus. Sometimes he'll spend days or weeks or years in the same place talking to the same people. And when Paul decides to move on, he always does so reluctantly. In this passage, it's easy to imagine Paul saying this with a, a bitter, frustrated tone of voice. But it's better to think of it as a voice of sorrow. He's broken over the fact that his own people won't receive their Messiah. He actually wrote about this in the letter he wrote to the church in Rome. This, this is what he said. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. I mean, he's saying, I'm willing to be cursed, cut off from Christ, if it meant that the rest of my fellow Jews would believe. Are any of you ready to say that sort of thing? I would go to hell if it meant my family got saved. Now, that's not a deal you can make with God, but it's an intense expression of passion, isn't it? If Paul's saying, I've got to move on from this group of Jews to talk to these Gentiles, you can trust him when he says that. You can trust him because he's so brokenhearted about it. And notice that Paul never uses someone's unbelief as an excuse to not talk about the gospel in other situations. He immediately goes and looks for someone else who needs to hear about Jesus. Until we have a heart like Paul's, we cannot use this sort of reason to walk away from someone. Here's another thing to notice in this passage, and this is where we see a lot of hope. When Paul shares the gospel, some people actually do believe. Not all the Jews reject the gospel. And this is really, really important. We should never be surprised when people reject the gospel, but we should never be surprised that people will believe the gospel, even unexpected people. I was having dinner with my neighbors this week and we're getting to know them and they're followers of Jesus that go to another good church in the area. And so we were talking about how they came to follow Jesus. How did this happen? And they said, we had no interest in Jesus until we were adults. We had no background growing up. We, we were, were the least likely people to become followers of Jesus. But her brother happened to come to faith, and like a lot of people who are new to the faith, he was passionate about sharing his faith with people. He, he was like so overeager in like a good way from my perspective, but to them it was like he was getting so obnoxious. And so uh, she was like, look, I'll go to one church thing with you if you'll just get off my back. And so she said to her husband, okay, we're gonna go to one thing and just shut him up, okay? So they decide they're gonna go to this thing, and he's like, I don't wanna go to this. I, I, I'm not doing something with this. So she says, all right, I'll go to the event that's during your uh, soccer league. And so you'll be playing a game of soccer. I'll go with him and we'll take care of it. So uh, she goes to this Bible study on a Sunday afternoon and he goes to the soccer league and they have canceled the game at the soccer league. And so he's like, I don't want to hang out by myself on Sunday afternoon. So I guess I'll go to this thing with her and I'll just look for ways that it's stupid so I can reject it. Like that's why they were going as, a, as an excuse to never think about this again. He said, I don't remember what the topic of that day was. But I remember walking out and saying to my wife, we gotta come back next week. They went for six months and didn't miss a week. And they said somewhere along the way, they realized, we think this is true. And they surrendered their lives to Jesus. Now that story is not actually a rare story. I know plenty of you here at Christ Community who would say something very similar. I was the least likely person to come to faith. I was resistant, I was not interested. But here you are today, in a service, worshiping Jesus as your savior. What would have happened if someone said, ah, they're not interested, just written you off and not shared the gospel with you? Even though many people will turn us down, we should never be surprised when someone believes because the kingdom is not hindered by rejection. 
The kingdom is also not hindered by restriction, by restriction. Remember where Paul is right now. He has been arrested. And unlike other times when he's been arrested, he's not put in an actual prison. He's under house arrest. The reason he's under house arrest is it might be a little while before he gets a trial. He has appealed to Caesar, and I don't know if you realize this, but emperors are kind of busy guys. So it might take a few years before he even gets a chance to see him. So Paul has finally reached the destination he's wanted to go to. He's in Rome, the the largest, most influential city in the world at that time, but he is restricted to the four walls of his home. But look at what happens. Verse 30. For two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Isn't that crazy? With all boldness, without hindrance. He's stuck in his home. He's under watch from Roman guards. He is waiting to stand trial before the crazy emperor Nero, and he may lose his life. And that does not scream to me unhindered. Does it? that's, That's crazy. It would not make me bold if I was in that situation. I'm in the shadow of this great empire, all this wealth and grandeur and political power and military might there. I might be a little hesitant to proclaim the kingdom of God. Oh yes, the emperor of the world, the true Lord of lords and king of kings, he's a homeless Jewish carpenter. Yeah, the same one that you guys put to death. He's actually more powerful than you. Like I, I would probably just keep my head down, try not to make waves and sort of get out of this tough situation. But not Paul. Paul refuses to see his home as a Roman prison. He sees it as a kingdom embassy. He refuses to see himself as a prisoner. He sees himself as a host, welcoming in whoever will come so he can share the gospel. And you know what else he was doing at this time? He was actually writing letters. He's writing letters to all these other churches around the empire. And we've got some of them. Four of them are in the New Testament. Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and Philemon. And this is what he actually wrote in one of those letters in Philippians about this experience while he's under house arrest. So see if you would say the same thing if you were in his situation. He said, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Paul is not complaining about his restrictions. He is celebrating the connections that they have brought him. He gets to share with Roman soldiers and government officials and servants and slaves and all sorts of people because of this. Paul was not hindered by his restrictions. And we don't need to be either. Some of you probably feel restricted in who you can connect with and how you can share. Some of you, maybe it's because of a health issue. You're, You're mostly stuck at home or at a doctor's office. But even in that situation, I think about friends and family that I've had in similar places and the connections they've made with nurses and specialists and other patients and families who are sitting in waiting rooms as they're getting tests and procedures. There's profound places of influence in that. Some of you feel restricted by your work environments. Talking about Jesus is literally, literally prohibited. I think about people who work in schools. My, my, te- my wife was a teacher. I've got friends who are teachers. They've got strict rules about what they can and can't say in a classroom. But that never kept Michelle, my wife, from having conversations with other teachers in the lunchroom or encouraging Christian students to share their faith with other kids. Or I think about psychologists and counselors. You've got ethical codes that say you can't evangelize your patients. 
But that doesn't prevent you from encouraging them to explore questions of faith, to ask the deeper issues. This is important for us to remember. For the most part, if you are in this country, you are not restricted. It is rare, if ever, that it is fitting to use the term persecution for an American Christian. That term is way too strong for any of the pushback that we feel. Now, we are currently in a time when we're losing some of the privilege in society we once had. We're receiving more scrutiny from the outside. But when you look around the world, the restrictions, the pushback we face really are not restrictions or persecution by comparison. But here's what else you see when you look around the world. You see that restrictions and obstacles and persecution are not actually an issue for the kingdom of God. History is full of stories where people tried to prevent the spread of the gospel and it completely backfired. The most famous one is probably in 1953 when China kicked out all Western missionaries. To a lot of people from the outside, it looked like that's the collapse of the Christian movement in that country. It's gone. But 50 years later, as the country opens up, we find out there are tens of millions of Christ followers in China. And the movement is growing so quickly that very soon there will be more Christians in China than anywhere else in the world. Similar thing happened in Cuba. Castro was concerned about too many people gathering in one place. He didn't want uh, any sort of organization against him to uh, arise. And so he made a rule that uh, people couldn't meet in groups of more than 20. Well, that's a hard thing if you're trying to grow a church there. If you're trying to get a gathering of Christ followers, what happens when you hit 20? Well, what happened in this situation is that they had to actually find a new place to meet. And so the group split and the group started planting more and more little churches around and actually spread faster because of that. We as a church partner with a church planning movement in Southeast Asia. It's a predominantly Muslim area and they face a lot of persecution, followers of Jesus there. But that hasn't stopped the movement from growing. Over the last 10 years, it's gone from almost nothing to 600,000 followers of Jesus. It's set to reach over a million fairly soon. They're currently baptizing 10,000 people a month in this movement. And God is reaching Muslims in all sorts of supernatural ways. 60% of people who come out of Islam say that they had a dream of Jesus before they converted. We've got multiple stories of church planters who've gone to villages and the night before they arrived, the entire village had the same dream that Jesus said, someone's gonna come and tell you about me. You may remember a few months ago, we raised some money for refugees, the Rohingya refugees who've been coming across the border into Bangladesh. Well, among the Rohingya before this, there was basically no trace of any followers of Jesus. But now, in the last year, over 2,000 people in the refugee camps have become followers of Christ. And that number will likely triple in the next six months. The kingdom is not hindered by restrictions. The ending to the book of Acts is very strange. I mean, think about how this goes, okay? Chapter 21, Paul is arrested and he's on his way to Rome and he's in trouble and we're gonna find out what's actually gonna happen to Paul. And in the last chapter, he finally arrives in Rome and we're gonna hear the verdict and story's over. We're done. We never find out what happens. Now we know that Luke is a great writer. He, he's, he's very careful in how he crafts his story. So why did he just say, eh, I'm not gonna end the story. I'm gonna leave you hanging. I think he was doing it very deliberately. I think he wants to leave us with the feeling that the story isn't over because guess what? The story isn't over. It continues. The spread of the kingdom did not stop in Rome. It didn't stop with Paul and the apostles. It has continued for the last 2,000 years and it includes you and me now. But Luke is trying to say the assignment isn't finished. We have a part to play in what's going on. The movement of the spirit keeps pressing out. 
And of course, this is what Jesus said would happen. He told stories, parables about the kingdom of God. One of the ones he told, he said, the kingdom is like a little seed, so small it's almost invisible. It gets buried under the ground. You can't see it anymore. But what happens? It starts putting out roots and sending out tendrils and growing branches. And slowly but surely over time, it overtakes the entire garden and the birds of the heavens come and flock to its branches. Well, guess what? That parable has come true and is coming true and will continue to come true until Jesus returns. You should never let anybody tell you that Christianity is in decline or retreat. We are not on the losing team. We we do face setbacks. We will face setbacks. There are times uh, when areas of the world have less of a Christian presence than they had before, but that has not stopped the kingdom. We have picked up a reputation. We do experience rejection. We do face restrictions, but we always have, and it hasn't stopped it ever yet. That the reason we can be people of hope and confidence in the future of Christ's movement is because his kingdom is just like he is. When Jesus was beat up and ridiculed and crushed and even killed, that was his moment of greatest strength. And just like Jesus, we can be people of patience and perseverance when we face opposition. When the world pushes us, we don't have to push back. We can just steadily and surely keep proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming Jesus with all boldness. Because even when we feel hindered, the kingdom is not. We're going to close our service now by singing one final song. And as we do that, we're going to collect our gifts and our offerings. And we do this every week, uh, but it's easy sometimes to lose the big picture of why we give. So to help us prepare for that moment and to remember why we give, I'd actually like us to pray a prayer together. So what I'm going to have you do at all four campuses is stand up right now, and I'd like you to pray with me this prayer on the screen. Let's pray this together. God, we give because we want you to use these gifts to change lives. May the lonely find a home. May the broken be made whole. May the condemned be forgiven. May the weak be made strong. And may the good news of your kingdom be heard near and far. Amen. Heavenly Father, you are our faithful God. You have never changed. You are still on the move and we have confidence in that. God, I wanna pray for our church that you would fill us with your spirit just like you did the early church. Empower us to share about your son Jesus with all boldness, without hindrance. God, I pray the same for churches in our area. God, we want to see your people everywhere thrive. And so we pray that you would empower uh, other communities who are serving people in need, who are proclaiming the good news of hope that we have in Christ, that you would give them everything that they need and that you would move your kingdom forward as you always have. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.